Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray that the Lord speaks to you as you hear from His Word today. So my kids, we have three girls, they were all born in South Florida and grew up, they grew up some in South Florida, but they got used to tropical, like that was South Florida was tropical. We were way down in Fort Myers on the Gulf side, uh, two hours below Tampa. So if you're looking on a map, that's where we were. Um, So they were all born there and they got used to summer in Florida, which is a little bit different than summer in West Virginia. Um, But the other thing they got used to was the water. So I don't know if you've ever swam in the Gulf before, but it's like taking a bath in salt water, a warm, icky, just bath in salt water, has no waves, and it's just kind of pretty to look at, and that's about it. That's the beaches in South Florida on the Gulf side. So we lived there for about 10 years, and then we moved to California, and so we spent five years in Southern California, and I remember when we, when we flew into California, the whole family, as we were getting ready to move there, and we were driving around with my soon-to-be boss, and he was showing us the area, and he drove us through Malibu. And so we're driving through Malibu, and the ocean is right there, and Zuma Beach, which is the beach they filmed Baywatch at, so just so you know, like that was the beach. Um, so we're driving down Zuma Beach, and he pulls over, and he says, all right, you got to put your toes in the sand. It's just kind of what you got to do when you come here. And so um, my kids used to South Florida, used to the Gulf and swimming in the Gulf. They get out of the truck and they go running down the sand like kids do, straight to the water, and they started screaming. And they ran right back up the beach because it was freezing. And they had never been in the ocean where it was cold before. They had no idea that the ocean was cold in the Pacific. And so that was just, that blew their minds. And so it was a different kind of beach that we were at in Southern California. And about a couple years ago, we moved back to West Virginia and my favorite place on the planet, having lived in all of those places, my favorite place on the planet is Southern West Virginia. I love Southern West Virginia. I love Southern West Virginia in the summer more than anything else. I like it all year, but in the summer in particular, I love the New River Gorge and Summersville Lake and the Gauley River and all of, uh, man, I just absolutely Love it. And so it's been fun showing my kids around the gorge. And our small group went a few weeks ago on July 4th. We went to Summersville Lake for the day and just had a blast together. Um, fantastic, gorgeous lake. The, uh, the West Virginia Tourism Office has not paid me to say any of this, by the way. I'm just sharing some of my summer. Um, and it's just been fantastic. And yesterday we were at Sutton Lake, which is another one of our, our really, really pretty lakes. And so there's a couple weeks left of summer. So get outside, enjoy it, uh, get the sunburn like I got going on, um, but enjoy your summer here in West Virginia. When we moved back, one of the things that I was most excited about when we moved back was whitewater rafting. So when I was a kid, we did a couple vacations. We went to Pipe Stem State Park. Have any of you done the, the state park tour? Have you gone to state parks at all? Nobody? A few of you? Okay. Um, we have some fantastic state parks. So we went to Pipe Stem when I was a kid, and I remember playing golf there and having a great time, but I'd never really experienced Southern West Virginia until college. So when I got to college, the school I went to in Beckley, Appalachian Bible College, had an extension ministry called Alpine. And they had a commercial outfitter's license on the New River and on the Gali. And so we could take people down as professionals uh, rafting. And so I spent my summers in college as a whitewater rafting guide. And it was my first introduction 
to southern West Virginia and the gorge and all the stuff that went on in the gorge. And so I loved it. And so that was way back in the day, way back in the day, in 1996. So this is me in 1996. I'm the dude on the back uh, in the green jacket. Um, I put this picture up on Facebook not too long ago, and somebody commented, why did they let 12-year-olds take people down the river? That was way too much laughter, way too much laughter. Um, I was actually 18 at this time, um, and that was my first summer working on the, in the gorge on the New River, taking people rafting. These people's lives were in my hands. Um, but when we moved back, it was awesome because it's just like riding a bike, right? So 20 years, you're gone, and then you come back and you go right back out. And now this is me this summer rafting again. So I get to continue to do it. I get to take people rafting, and it's just amazing. Every time I'm in the, in the gorge on the river, I pinch myself and I just say, this is the best place on the planet. You might have another favorite place on the planet, but that one is mine. I would take it any day, every day, all the time. Uh, it's wonderful. So Pastor Matt and Pastor Mike have both preached sermons where they have used rafting as an illustration. And I sit there in pain while they're doing that because they are rookies, they are novices, they have no clue what they're doing. Matt sits in the middle of the boat and screams. Like, it's awful. And so I just sit there like, what is happening to our beloved state right now? And so I'm going to share a little bit about rafting so that you know what goes on when you go rafting. All right? So there's, there's, there are things that rafting has that are going to apply to what we're going to talk about today. So this is not just random. All right? But when you look at a raft, you'll see that there are a group of people in that raft. And all of them are doing things, right, as they're rafting. Um, and so a raft is made up of a group of people, and they have to be a team, much like a lot of other things in life where you need teams. You need groups of people who are focused on a common goal and are working together to get to that goal, to accomplish that goal. Many of you serve or you work on teams where you have to work together to accomplish a goal. So rafting is very similar to that. There are some constants to rafting. For instance... When you go rafting, there will be rapids. That's just a constant. No matter what else is true of your day, there will be rapids if you go rafting, hopefully, uh, if you go rafting. So whether your team is good or your team is bad, whether it's sunny or rainy, whether you brought lunch or forgot lunch, whether you're all aggressive and you wanna go as badly as you possibly can, or whether you're all scared out of your minds, and you can't believe that someone talked you into getting into this boat with these people and going down this river, whatever the case may be, whatever those circumstances are, there will be rapids. And you're going to encounter those rapids, much like lots of other things that you would encounter in your life. You're gonna have certain things in life that you're gonna encounter. And so the success rate of your rafting trip as you go through these rapids that are certain largely depends on your team. Depends on your team. So for instance, in the raft, if you look at the person in the front left corner of the raft, you can barely see their head and they look like they're about to drown as they go right underneath that wave. So that person has a job, a very specific job. 
their job is to be what's called the pace setter. And so every time we get in a raft and I'm training somebody how to raft and that person says, I wanna sit in the front left, I say, aha, we'll see how good you are because your job is to be the pace setter. So the rest of the raft kind of goes at the speed of that person. So if they're paddling really, really weak, it's gonna be a long day. But if they're a strong paddler and they're going after it and they're, they're creating a really good pace, then everybody can follow them, then it's gonna be probably a pretty good day if I do my job, all right. And so then everybody else has that role as well. So the right side follows the left side and then everybody works together as you're paddling. So if you've ever seen a raft where the, the team is not working together, it'll be going like this as it goes down the river because you're all paddling in all kinds of different ways. And so it's crucial as you go through these rapids for everybody to be working and paddling at the same time. When you serve on a team or you're part of a team, you know that principle. It's the same principle. Everybody has a particular role that they play or a particular skill set that they bring to the team, but it's crucial that they have the same goal in mind and that they're working together to get to that goal, to accomplish that goal. Today, we're going to go to Psalm 133. Psalm 133. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Psalm 133. And we're going to start there, and then we're going to bounce around a few different places. I'm a, the executive pastor here at Bible Center, which basically means that I take abstract things and I try to make them practical. Um, and so I try to make things real. And so today I'm going to be really, really, really practical with you. I'm going to give you some very, very practical things that I hope that you will adopt into your everyday life. But we're going to start in Psalm chapter 133. At the top of that chapter in your Bible, you may have a little phrase that says something to the effect of a psalm of ascent. A psalm of ascent. All right, now... That is a very, very fancy phrase that literally means this song was sung while people were going up. Like it actually means ascent, like ascend, going up. So when people would travel to Jerusalem, Jerusalem is on top of a hill, they would sing these songs. And so these songs got the name Songs of Ascent because they would sing them as a group while they were traveling the road up to Jerusalem. So there are a few of these psalms. Actually, Psalm 120 through 134 are all psalms of ascent. And they were written by different people. Solomon has a couple in there. David has a few in there. Some are anonymous. But these are songs that were sung by groups of people in anticipation of being together for the festivals. So they would go to Jerusalem to celebrate the festivals. And so as they're, as they're walking uphill to Jerusalem, they're singing these songs in anticipation of being together, of worshiping together. So they were kind of anticipatory in nature as well. So Psalm 133, and this one was written by King David. Verse one says this, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. And then he says two things. He says two things that to him are good and pleasant. He's saying it's like this and it's like this. And so if you were writing this today, you could fill in a couple things that you would say these things are good and pleasant. Like for me, sitting on the riverbank by the new river at sunset would be good and pleasant. 
would enjoy that a lot. And so David says two things that were good and pleasant. He says, it's like the precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there, which refers back to verse 1, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. So there's something about this word, unity. There's something about this thing, unity, that unleashes the Lord's blessing. It unleashes the Lord's blessing. Now we've talked to you for a little while now about what we think God is calling us to as a ministry, as a church. We've started tossing around this phrase, we wanna saturate the city with the gospel. We wanna see Charleston transformed from the people that bring Jesus from Bible Center Church. We wanna saturate the city with the gospel. And so how does this church begin moving in that direction? How do we begin that process of saturating our city with the gospel? How do we press in deeply to God's mission for us? I'm gonna give you five practical prayers that I would ask you to adopt into your everyday prayer life. They're simple. It'll take you about 10 to 15 seconds a day to breathe these out every day. But ultimately, I believe as we look into the scriptures today that we're gonna see that these prayers, if prayed by the body of Christ, will ultimately lead us to unity. And so I would put unity out there as our common goal. That's our common goal. And so how do we work together to reach unity? I would say that part of that is these five prayers, five prayers for the church that lead to unity. The first one, number one, number one is a clean heart. A clean heart. Number one is a clean heart. Psalm 51.10, also by David, says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And then in verse 11, he says, Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Create in me a clean heart, O God. So the first challenge is that you begin your day or you end your day or wherever it is that you breathe out this prayer sometime every day that you just say, God, give me a clean heart. God, give me a clean heart. Most of the times our prayers don't go like that. They, they go more like God give that person a clean heart or give that person a clean heart or God, they really need some work or here's a prayer request for that person over there because man, they're struggling. So God, will you help them because they're really ticking me off right now. It's not about me, it's about them. And so I wanna challenge you as a church, as an individual to start every day by saying, God, give me a clean heart. Give me a clean heart. There's a couple things that that does. One, it acknowledges that God is the giver of the clean heart. It's not something that I sit out to work for. 
It comes from the Lord. He's the giver of that clean heart. And so I'm reaching out, I'm saying, God, clean me up. Give me a clean heart. The second thing it does is that it starts to acknowledge that in relationships, I might be part of the problem. I might be part of the problem. Instead of me looking around at everybody else and assuming it's their problem and it's their problem and and I'm totally good right here. When I say to the Lord, give me a clean heart, I'm starting to acknowledge that maybe I'm part of the problem. Maybe when it comes to this ultimate destination of unity, I'm one of the people causing disunity. And so God, give me a clean heart. In their book on marriage called The Meaning of Marriage, Tim and Kathy Keller, they talk about marriage and they talk about several keys to a healthy marriage, to keeping a marriage healthy. And one of the things that they say is to treat your own selfishness as the problem. Treat your own selfishness as the problem because it's the only thing you can control. You can't control someone else's selfishness. Treat your own selfishness as the problem. And so when I come to the Lord and I say, God, give me a clean heart. There's a confession in there. There's some repentance in there because he's gonna point out things and he's gonna change me over time as I continually ask him to give me a clean heart. And it's gonna create a humility that allows me to interact and interface with others in a better way. So prayer number one, God, give me a clean heart. Number two, number two is wisdom. Wisdom, I would invite you to pray, not only for a clean heart every morning or every night, God, give me a clean heart, but also to say, God, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom. James chapter one, James chapter one, verses two through eight says this, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So there's a couple things in there. He says, consider it joy when you face trials. So remember when I said about a rafting trip that one of the things that's certain when you go rafting is you're gonna encounter rapids and a lot of the other stuff is circumstantial? One of the things that's certain about being a human is you're gonna encounter trials. You're gonna encounter brokenness. You're gonna encounter tough days. You're gonna encounter hard times. It's certain. Now, if you're like me, I do better when I have my expectations set right. When I have my expectations set right, I tend to respond better. It's when something comes at me from over here that I'm not expecting that I struggle. But when my expectations are set right, I can tend to respond decent. And so one of the things that this passage does is it should set your expectations right. So when you encounter something that's hard, when you encounter something that's a trial, God has said you are going to. 
He hasn't said that when you become a Christian and you start to follow Jesus, that everything's gonna be easy and hunky-dory the rest of your life. And you're just gonna smile your way through life. You're just gonna be happy all the time. He's actually said, you're gonna encounter hard, difficult moments. So set your expectations there. And so how do you have joy there? So a lot of us, when we walk into a place like this, we walk in and people ask how we're doing and the answer is fine with a smile, right? Fine with a smile. So joy has a little different connotation to me than I'm just smiling all the time. You can have joy and be sad. You can have joy in the middle of grief. You can have the joy in the middle of brokenness because you are content that God has you. And you're content that this tells you that in the middle of that brokenness, he's actually working on you. So not only does he have you, but he's proving to you through the trial that he is working in your life. And so you can have joy because he hasn't left you, he hasn't forgotten you, he hasn't left you behind. He's still molding you and shaping you and changing you more into the image of Christ. So there's joy in that. God's got you, even in the middle of hardship, even in the middle of trial. Then he goes on. Verse three again, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Verse four, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Verse five, here's the prayer. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. If you lack wisdom, so in the context, we're in the middle of a trial, we're in the middle of a hardship, we're in the middle of a difficulty, and God says, I'm using this to create perseverance in your life so that you can continue to grow, so you can continue to change, but in the middle of that, ask me for wisdom and I'll give it to you. Now, what is wisdom? Wisdom doesn't mean that I can do math better or that I'm really good at science all of a sudden. Wisdom means that I start to see the world and my life the way that God sees it. I have his perspective. I have eternal perspective on life and circumstances and situations that I might encounter. So as I head into that trial, I can have joy because I see it in light of eternity and I see it how God is changing me so that I'm more on mission for him and more unified with the people around me. So he says, ask for wisdom and I'll give it to you. So the second thing I would ask for you to pray, pray, God, give me wisdom. We're about six seconds deep into that prayer right now. We're not talking a lot. You don't have to explain wisdom to God. Just say, God, give me wisdom. You've promised that you'll give me wisdom. I need wisdom. Two things that already are drawing us closer to unity. A humility as we ask for a clean heart and a wisdom to start to see people and circumstances and life the way that God sees people and circumstances and life. Number three. Number three is boldness. Number three is boldness. Acts chapter four 
told you we're going to bounce around a little bit today. Acts chapter 4. So early church, the, the church has, has started and it started to explode. It started to expand. Peter and John have been preaching Jesus and his resurrection, and they've been told not to preach Jesus and his resurrection. They continue to preach Jesus and his resurrection with boldness. So they get thrown in jail. So that's all that's happened at the beginning of this chapter. We come down to verse 23, and we see this. When they were released, Peter and John, they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. All right, so they've been in jail for preaching Jesus and his resurrection. They've been released. They go back to their friends. They tell them what the, the priests and the elders had said. And so now that group of people, that church, the early church responds to that. Their leaders had just been thrown in jail for preaching Jesus and his resurrection. And so how do they respond to that threat? 24, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father, David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered, gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So catch it. They had just been wronged. Their rights, their freedom had been infringed upon. Their leaders had just been thrown in jail for preaching Jesus and his resurrection. And their response is to say, God, you're in control. And you give power and you take power away. You are in control. Nowhere in there did it say they went on Facebook and rip the other side because of what they said or what they did. Nowhere in there does it say they went and shared an article that proved their point. They got on their knees and they said, God, you are in control. God, you are in control. You give power and you take power away. You are sovereign, even in the middle of all of this. You are sovereign, you're in control. And then what do they ask for? So they acknowledge God's sovereignty. And in verse 29, here's what they ask for. And now Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. That was their ask. They didn't ask for freedom from Roman oppression. They didn't say there's an army in my town. God, please get them out. They didn't ask for stuff that we would consider to be good. They asked for boldness. They had their expectations set at 
God, I know life's going to be tough, and I know I'm going to face trials, and I know I'm going to face really hard times. Give me joy in the middle of that. And while you're giving me joy, also give me boldness so that I can continue to preach Jesus and him crucified. Give me boldness so that I can continue to do that. He prayed for boldness. And what happened? Verse 30, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Because God answered their prayer. For us to saturate our city, it's gonna take a group of people who have humility because God is continually creating clean hearts in us. We have wisdom. We see the world. We see our city. We see the life and the story of people in our city, the way that God sees those people. We see our own life, the way that God sees our life. And we're willing to step into very difficult places to share Jesus and him crucified. Those difficult places include our neighbors, the people right across the fence from us. Those difficult places in, include sports teams that our kids play on. And we sit on a blanket and watch the games. They also include the marginalized, the people that don't fit in our neighborhood include all that, but it's going to take boldness. And so let's ask, as a church, as a body, let's ask for boldness, knowing that that is something that God wants to give. Number four, laborers. Laborers. Luke chapter 10, verse 1 and 2. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Verse 2, and he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. When I was in college, uh, every other missionary that would come to town would use this verse. And they would, they would stand up and they would preach this verse and it was, it was great what they were saying, but they would preach, see, this is, this is why you need to go because the harvest is plentiful and so you need, to, you need to go. What's the command in this verse? To pray. It's to pray. Why? Because God is the sender of people. God is the sender of people. And notice he says the harvest is not the problem. The harvest is huge. There's a city waiting. So let's get on our knees and let's pray that God will raise up people to go. Because he is the one who changes hearts. He is the one who sends people. He is the one who will ultimately saturate the city with the gospel. But his method is to use us. 
His method is to use us. Remember when Jesus said to his disciples toward the end of his ministry, they gathered around and, and they were sad because he, he said, I'm leaving. You know, they just spent years with him, several years with him and, and he gathers them and he says, I'm leaving. And he talks about where he's going and all of that. But then he says something incredible. He says, but it, when I go, the Holy Spirit is gonna come and it's better that the Holy Spirit comes than for me to stay. It's better for him to use the church indwelt by the Holy Spirit than it is for Jesus to be walking our planet right now. The problem is not the harvest. The problem is that we are not praying earnestly that God will raise up laborers. That's his method. It's us. And that's better than Jesus being here himself. It's better. So let's pray for laborers. So we're praying for clean hearts so that it produces humility among us as we interact with each other. We're praying for wisdom so that we see the world and life and stories and people and our circumstances through the eyes of God. We're praying to, for boldness so that we're willing to step into those hard conversations, willing to put ourselves out there, willing to share Christ. And we're praying for laborers, people to walk beside us, people to go with us. We're not gonna win the city with good worship services. I'm not gonna win the city with a great event. We're gonna win the city because God raises up laborers that go into every nook and cranny and holler and cul-de-sac and share Christ. The last one, number five. I think I may have made this word up. You'll get it though. Oneness. I think the definition of a word is if you understand what it means, right? Oneness. Oneness. John chapter 17. So just kind of setting. This is commonly referred to, John 17 is commonly referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's toward the end of his ministry and he is praying. He's about to go to the cross and a lot is on his mind. He could have prayed for a million things. But this is what he prayed for. Verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only. So prior to this, he's been praying for his disciples. So his disciples have been following him for a while and things were about to get tough. Things were about to get tough. So he's praying for them and he's praying that, that they'll have all the stuff that they need. But then he says this, he says, I don't ask for my disciples only. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So for those of you this morning that know Christ, Jesus prayed for you right here. In John chapter 17, he's praying for you. He's praying for me, for those that will believe in me through their word. What does he pray? Again, he could have prayed for a million different things. What's on his heart? What's on his mind? Right as he's about ready to go to the cross, this is what he prays for. That they, that us, that we may all be one. 
just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. It's the thing that Jesus prays for at the end of his ministry. It's the thing that he looks out and he sees the church and he sees the explosion of the church all across the world, across generations. And he says, God, I pray that they will be one. That they will be one. Why? So that the world will know that you sent me. That's how this city knows that Jesus was sent to save them by our oneness. By the way we interact with each other, by the way we love each other, by the way we care for each other, by the way we're not satisfied with surface relationships, by the way we dive deep with people, by the way we take time for people in our busy life, by the way we reprioritize what we're doing so that we can invest in people, by the way that we live with people in the ups and the downs, the way that we lock arms on mission together by our oneness, by our oneness. It showcases Jesus to the world. John said this in 1 John 4. He said, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. His love is made complete in us. You could read it like this. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. The way you love each other is a picture of Jesus to our city. It's why it's better that we have the Holy Spirit because there's more of us. And so he goes everywhere you go and you have the opportunity by the way you love people who also love Jesus, which shouldn't be hard. You have the opportunity to showcase, to complete God's love for the world. The church is such a unique place. We're made up of so many different things, so many different opinions, socioeconomic statuses, races, political affiliations. Caleb said it earlier, it just shouldn't work. <laughs> it shouldn't work. How does it work? Because Jesus supersedes all of that. He is our identity. He's what brings it all together. And so I'm willing to sacrifice all of that because of Christ and because of our common goal. We have a common goal. Just like those people in the raft are trying to get out under the bridge safe and sound. We have a common goal. It's to saturate our city with the gospel. 
And it happens as we are unified. It happens as we are unified. Not because we do cool stuff. Because we're unified. And the world around us sees something that is so different than what they've ever experienced. You look at our society today, you don't see unity anywhere. You see division. You see anger. You see people looking for division trying to create division. The church is such a countercultural thing, and this is the thing that's countercultural. We love each other even when we disagree. We don't stand back from afar and throw stones at somebody in judgment. We lean in in relationship. Every time that the Bible talks about judging somebody, relationship, deep relationship is assumed. There's no room for somebody standing back and saying, well, you're wrong. I'm going to throw something at you from over here. It always happens as you're walking through life arm in arm and you're sharpening me and I'm sharpening you. That's the only place that judgment takes place because we're unified. It doesn't mean we agree. It means we have a common goal and we have a common savior and we're working together to bring him to our city. So we dive deep. Unity, unity, totally against the grain in our society. Most of the time when we judge, we don't know stories. We don't know what the morning was like. We don't know what last night was like. We don't know what you went through last week. We just see a moment in time. Unity is different. It's hard. It calls us to stay when we've been hurt. It asks us to lock arms on mission even when we disagree about some things. It asks us to wade into the mess of each other's lives. Deal with hurt, deal with pain, deal with disagreement. And love each other the way that Jesus loves us. As I continue to fail him, he stays and he continues to love me. That's how the world sees him through us. If you looked at your past week, what you posted, how you spoke of or to people, the way you responded to pain or hurt or trial in your life, would people see a relationship that represents Christ and his love? Would they see that? Would they find a deep well of love? Do they describe you that way? A person who's gracious, a person who's long-suffering, a person who's willing to go the extra mile, reprioritize, adjust my schedule, Last night we were coming back from Sutton Lake. It's another one of our great lakes. <laughs> and about 10 miles from the exit, we blew a tire, um, which is great. I think it was because it was 135 degrees outside and we were driving on the surface of the sun. Um, 
So we limped to the exit and we pulled off and, and got into the little parking area. And I had like six people I could call, a bunch of them were on vacation, called a, called a buddy. Because I knew no matter what, he's going to help. I just knew it. So I called him, hey, what are you doing? I'm in Target. Just blew a tire. I'll be there in a minute. No hesitation. No hesitation. So he went and he bought a tire and he brought it. And then we didn't have the right jack because you never have the right jack. And so we went and borrowed a jack. He scared somebody when he did it, but we borrowed a jack. We got this thing up, got the tire changed like 1030. It's like, hey, see you tomorrow. And off we went. Now, a lot of us would do that for somebody. West Virginians are some of the friendliest people on the planet. While we're sitting there, I had like five people stop and ask me if we were all right. Never met them before in my life. Just stopping. And most of them, they're stopping and they're saying, hey, I just, you know, I made a vow. I had a bunch of problems with my, my and so I, I thought if I saw somebody, I'd stop. And one dude even offered me a tire. I'm like, no, I got one coming. Thanks, though. That's who we are. That's our culture. So what's different about this? It goes deeper. It goes deeper. You see, I know him. I know his struggles. I know his life. I know he's dealing with in life. He knows what I'm dealing with in life. When we talk, we don't just talk about changing a tire. We talk about life. We talk about how's Jesus in you? How you growing? How's he changing you? What are you struggling with? It's deeper. Unity is the way that this city will be saturated with the gospel. And so I would encourage you, add it to your prayer life. God, give me a clean heart. Give me wisdom. Give me boldness. Raise up laborers. Give me the ability to be one within our community. 15 seconds every day. And let's see how God uses us to change this world. Once again, thank you for joining us this week. We look forward to serving you in next week's podcast, along with our weekend services every Sunday morning at 9 and 11 a.m.